Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm at the Hamilton Southeastern Administration Building for the School Corporation, and uh, I'm honored to have Dr. Yvonne Stokes as my guest today. She is the superintendent of schools here at the Hamilton Southeastern School District. So, Dr. Stokes, uh, welcome. Our first chance to, to talk one-on-one on a podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, it's good to have you with me. Last time I spoke to you, you and Alan Borf were on a, a Zoom call, and I was down in Florida and was just getting used to some equipment, and I was having all kinds of uh, glitches there. But uh, we did get that done, and it was a really uh, really good podcast, I think. So I'm looking forward to the two of us talking here. And I, I'm going to start off with what I consider to be some very good news for the school corporation, a couple of things. Uh, the first one is, and I'm sorry, I could not make this. I didn't uh, get word of it until very close to the the time it happened. Fisher's High School, the Marching Tiger Band, got some very interesting news and got a big surprise the day before we were recording this on uh, April 27th. The day before, there was a big surprise for the marching band. Tell yes. us about that. So our band at Fisher's High School was very surprised. The Macy's Corporation sent representatives to share with them that they have been selected to be a part of the 2023, which is their um, Macy's Thanksgiving parade. They're going to be a part of that parade. Now, why that is exciting news, and I'm sure everybody is happy about that. Unfortunately, our students who are current juniors and current seniors, they won't be able to be a part of the actual parade, but I'm sure they'll be cheering everyone on. Yeah, that's going to be a big deal. That uh, that. That parade is almost 100 years old. It's hard to believe it's been around Mm -hmm. that long. So it's a great American tradition. And I know that the the band members, their families, and of Mm -hmm. course, uh, the band director and and, and the whole staff dealing with band at Fishers High School, they've got to be very excited about this. Uh, So even though it's 2023, we can start the work now. Yes, they have to. And I'll tell you, um, Fishers should be just ecstatic. We also learned last night that our We the People competition came in with a second place winner, which was Fishers High School. And that's for the entire nation. Yes, that was a national competition. So we learned this late last night when we were actually at the Fishers High School um, actual orchestra show over in Carmel. So was all things Fishers yesterday. It's a, it was a good, good day for Fishers High School, and uh, I have been a volunteer at times helping people get ready for the competition for We the People. Uh, it's, I've done that as a volunteer in the past. It's an outstanding program put on by the Bar Association. It's all about civic knowledge. You uh, present a paper and, and answer questions from people who are very knowledgeable about the issue, particularly when you get to the national level. They're, yes. they're, those are not easy questioners you have. You know, so, I've been a part of the practices that they've had to prepare. So I'm happy that they were able to do so well. They did really well at practices. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's really hard to explain just how much work 
goes into that, not uh, the students, the mm-hmm. staff, uh, the volunteers such as yourself That's and myself who have helped prepare them. I would spend an entire day, <laughs> an entire Sunday, for most of the day uh, doing that. It takes several hours to, to, to be a volunteer, but I enjoyed it, and I'm very, very happy for the people at Fisher's High School. So am I. They've done a great job. I mean, as our other high school has done as well, HSC, but we're excited for the success that Fisher's has experienced. Well, HSC has had plenty of their their, yes, their, they have. Uh, uh, plaudits as well. So they both get it. Just happened to be Fisher's has has had a couple here recently. Let me uh, dig into what we need to talk about. I want to start off with uh, thinking about the beginning of the school year, August of last year. Uh, we were still dealing with COVID, and the virus, of course, is still with us now. But it's it's less pandemic and more endemic at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, based on the professionals I I talk to and and and, and were depend upon. Uh, to to tell me about this, including people at the Fisher's Health Department and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What I would like for you to talk about, talk about COVID, navigating your first school year as the superintendent <laughs> here, dealing with the second year of COVID uh, for yourself, really all school systems, but particularly what you're dealing with here at HSE. So yes, COVID, an interesting topic. Um, I will tell you that um, we understand COVID had an impact on our student staff and our community as a whole. And so one of the things that we learned quickly was practicing the art of pivoting in the moment. Um, We know that we had to make changes to our return to instruction plan with not a whole lot of notice, but we always tried to give notice to our community so that they could pivot as well. But as you know, our plans were always based on how could we keep our doors open. I called it SIS, students in school. What did we have to do? to keep students in school. And so we partnered with our health departments. We tracked our own internal data. We partnered with our nurses inside our schools and our um, principals, and we put into play all the rules that were necessary to keep students in school. And I will tell you, um, while we've had many interesting conversations related to all things COVID, we have grown stronger as a district. And because of that, I think it's kept us focused on what's important. What's important, keeping teaching and learning the main thing, the main thing, because we want to make sure that we're able to continually provide that academic excellence when it comes to supporting our students. I've heard you use this phrase many times. The main thing is the main (laughs) thing. And you just mentioned it now. And that's how you explain to the community why you kept the mask mandate in place as long as you did because, and I think all the educational data I have seen that's available to us in the media is that when you have students in school as opposed mm-hmm. to being virtual learning, that even hybrid, that, that the performance is much better if you can get these students and the, the staff, the teachers in the same building all together. And that, you've always said, that's been your goal all along. It has been. Um, while There are alternate ways of teaching and learning. You know, we experienced this beyond the K-12 level. For students in the K-12 grade span, it is always better to have them have some access to -to face-to-face learning. Now, do we have opportunities where we can use technology and, you know, we can advance some of the supports we provide? Of course we do. But... I believe for teaching and learning to be most effective, we need to, where possible, always have it face-to-face. And and you have a, 
had a record this school year, which is amazing. I've been watching what's been happening around the state. And this school year, there have been many school corporations that have had to shut buildings down for Mm. a period of time because of COVID outbreaks. You were steadfast with that mask mandate. It was controversial to some people. (laughs) Oh, yes. But I think your message to the community was the main thing is to keep these students and staff in the school buildings to the extent possible. And and, and the record really shows that because... In, in HSE schools this school year, you've had to close no buildings due to COVID outbreaks. I'm happy to not have to have closed buildings. So SIS, students in school. And you know what? I would be remiss if I did not thank our teachers. I mean, they covered prep periods for each other. Uh, when people were sick, they took on students in their classrooms. So our administration, our nurses, all our support staff, our custodial staff, administration, and you know, our parents and our community, um, all, it took a team. You know, how we say we're better together, HSE, that is an example of being better together. So I want to thank all of them. It was because of all of the stakeholders that we were able to keep students in school. When you talk about using technology, I want to just clear up one thing that I've heard a lot. I've heard this brought up at school board meetings and in uh, conversations within the community. There is a difference between e-learning and virtual learning. They're, real, they're, they're very similar, but they're, they're two different things. Explain how they are different. So to explain that, I'm going to take us back to around just at the start of 2019, Back around that time, there was an Indiana code, and it still is here, but Indiana code 20-30-2-1 basically set the parameters for what would be an instructional day. And so what happened is the Indiana Department of Education allowed schools to have what they call e-learning days without them having to be approved. Prior to that 2019 session, e-learning days had to be approved. You had to apply, you had to get a waiver or what have you, and they had to be approved. But they basically said at that time that e-learning days provide school districts with an option for continuing an instructional day away from the traditional time limits and brick and mortar setting. So if you think about that, if you think about e-learning with that definition, e-learning could have been anything that was not in the brick and mortar setting. It could have been a field trip. It could have been anything that was not in a brick and mortar setting. However, when we fast forward, just as recent as yesterday, hot off the press, the Indiana Department of Education gave us some information about what they call virtual student instructional days, and they gave a definition for a virtual instructional day. So essentially, a virtual instructional day is basically an instructional day during which the school provides virtual instruction or remote learning to at least 50% of our students enrolled in our normal attendance that would be in person normally. We have to provide it to at least 50%. That's their definition. But then they went on to say in order for it to be counted as a part of our 180 days, we had to at least provide 50% of that time as synchronous instruction. So then you come to the question, well, what's synchronous instruction? And what's asynchronous instruction? So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll Please explain Please do, because that. that's a question I get quite a bit. Okay. So basically, um, 
Synchronous instruction is instruction delivered live and in real time to a student by the student's teacher. So if we're on a virtual setting, let's just say we're on, you know, some platform, it could be Zoom or what have you. But if we're on a platform, the teacher would have to be seen by the students. That's considered synchronous instruction. Whereas the opposite, uh, which would be asynchronous instruction, is basically the teacher doesn't have to be seen. And in fact, students could have self-paced virtual learning where they're dealing with items on maybe like a platform. We use Canvas here and they're doing some work and maybe they might meet back up with the teacher visually at a different time. But that's asynchronous because they're really not with the teacher and the teacher's not necessarily seen. So there's more than one way to do virtual e-learning. I mean, yes. and these terms are, are changing. As you said, you just have a new bulletin from the uh, State Department of Education that sort of put another layer on that definition. They so have. these are these are moving targets, are they not? They are. And um, one thing to know is that part of why we were given this information was because of one of the actual, um, let's see, one of the actual laws that pass that speak to the fact that we can have, you know, three virtual student instructional days. I think it's House Bill 1093. So, yes, it is House Bill 1093. So because of that, we were given some more clarity around what exactly is meant by a virtual day. And you had to make a a, a small change in your calendar as a result of that. We do, because we want our student days to be considered in the 180 days. We can do more things, but would they necessarily be a part of the 180 days? And we want to ensure that everything we do is a part of that collective accountability, because without the 180 day requirement, we could lose some of our funding. So we don't want to do that because our funding is used to support our our teachers and all our support staff. And a large amount of your funding for that comes from the state and also a referendum. And we're going to move to referendum now okay. uh, because operating referendums uh, have a, a certain lifespan. It's been seven years. I think it's eight years now, but it had been seven years mm-hmm. for quite a while. And uh, that's called an operating referendum where you ask the taxpayers if they're willing to pay more property taxes and their tax rate to support uh, what the school system is doing. In, our, in the case of HSC, it was mostly for teachers to hire and, and pay teachers and to support a uh, mental health program and some other things. That was the Lower last... Lower class sizes. And, and the class sizes went down, particularly in the lower grades. Mm-hmm. That was the last referendum's issues, but uh, that is coming to a close and there'll be a... Uh, a decision by the school board coming up on what to do about the referendum. They have many choices. They could keep it as it is. They could raise it. They could lower it. It's really a dis- uh, an elected official decision, and that's our seven-member school board that would make that that final decision. I've been through two referenda. Mm. One was uh, uh, to fund what are now called the college and career academies. They called them senior academies at the time of the referendum, but changed the name later. It's the same thing. Concept. And those buildings you see there, those concepts are where we're funded by a, a ref- that's a one-time referendum where you're, you're paying for buildings, a building project. And then of course there was uh, the operating referendum that's about uh, to be considered again, because it is going to expire. And we want to renew it. It's it's a re- it's, so it's a renewal situation at this point. Uh, it's been handled a, a, a different ways in the past. I know that uh, the two times that I was here covering the referendum, there was a political action committee formed to advocate for it, and that was the center point for 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 the, for that in terms of of advocating for uh, the referendum vote that the school board had. Uh, 
had, had passed and and and, uh, and asked voters to approve. Uh, this time, the, the school board's going to have a little different approach on this. Uh, I know you've made some uh, uh, recommendations to the school board, and you've moved forward on doing some interviews with some private companies. So I just would like uh, to know where this stands in terms of where you are going to be uh, moving in terms of recommendations to the board uh, on what to do next on the coming operating referendum. So I do want to reiterate something that you said. I do want to go on record saying that um, the school board of trustees does ultimately determine whether the district seeks a referendum renewal or not. So um, so the information I'm sharing is just solely to kind of share what we've done so far, but not to supersede any decision that the board may choose to make. So what I can tell you is that um, without saying any names, because I, I, I'd rather be fair in that regards, um, similarly to what HSC has done in the past, we will be conducting a listening tour throughout the district to help with voter education and outreach. But what we've done right now is that um, we know that a PAC committee has to be utilized for a referendum, and our intention is to use one for this renewal process. So we have been trying to interview some possible firms who may be able to support us in that endeavor. Um, we know that our community and our families and our staff are our strength. They really are. And we need their help in supporting us in order for us to be successful in our efforts. So one of the things that we found that's really going to be important and we've already in some ways started sharing this with our, um, we, it's like our PTO, um, is the fact that we need to make sure that they understand the feasibility of what a referendum is for and that we make sure that they not only understand what the referendum is for, but that we're wanting to put on our website what we actually use the 2016 referendum for so that people could understand why we're renewing it, what supports we want to continue. And then it's important for um, them to understand that there's been language change on the ballot. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with that. Um, so our concern about them knowing is that the language change on the ballot uses the term increased four times among other factors that are there. So we understand that the language is what it is and we're going to have to use it, but we want to make sure that there's clarity when people go to the polls and that they understand that we're not necessarily increasing unless of course the board chooses to do that. And by everything that I'm understanding, that's not necessarily the case. Um, so if you recall, initially, there was some polling done by an outside group of Indiana voters. Do you recall that? And it wasn't specific to HSC, but that polling found that 14% of the yes votes went no just because of improper education about the language. So this is one of the reasons why we're just exploring options to get us some supports for folks who are experts in the field to help us with this, but no decision has been made yet. Yeah, and I, I'll just make an editorial comment myself. You don't have to comment on this, but from what I've seen uh, from what the legislators have said in some of these language changes, there were at least some people in the legislature, and I'm just paraphrasing them, that thought that there were too many of these referenda that mm -hmm. were being approved, and they felt that the taxpayers needed more information. And so that may or may not be true. That was the argument that was being made when that language was changed. But that word increase is in there, even though 
the referendum may not increase from where it is now. Yes. So I think that's the point you're trying to make. Right. And and uh, I'm sure we'll make that whatever right. the board decides to do, they will make their case as to right. why uh, they want whatever is done on the, on the next referendum. Um, and there are some very specific rules. And I went through this uh, in the previous referendum, the operating referendum, because people who are staff members for the school corporation, most of them anyway, are, are restricted on their ability to advocate one way or the other, either for or against the referendum while they're working, during their working hours. Uh, I know a little bit about this. I was a federal civil servant for mm. many years, 28 years, and there were very specific rules. We could, we could get involved politically, but we could not do that during our working hours That's in correct. any way, shape, or form. And you have a similar rule for school employees, at least most of them. Explain how that works. So um, if you look at the Indiana Code 20 46 Dash one, I believe, dash 20. So that's 20 46 1 20. It gives some restrictions on promoting the position of a referendum. And so um, basically, once the board adopts the you know, authority to have a referendum, we at that time have certain limits that are put on us. Um, there's a limitation on advocacy during the workday by school employees, excluding the board of school trustees, uh, myself as superintendent, my uh, two assistant superintendents, and my chief financial officer. We are pretty much the only ones who could actually do some things. Um, it disallows advocacy using district facilities, so we can't even use our property, equipment, and messaging systems, and our website. Um, it disallows expenditures from the referendum, which is the district fund, and it prohibits us sending advocacy material home with students. Now, the key word in what I just said is advocacy. Um, the statute sets forth limitations for advocacy, but we are not prevented from sharing factual information, especially if community members ask. So I do want to make that clear. So if somebody asks a question during the, the school day of a staff member and they know the answer, they could do that without advocating one way or the other. They could, they could answer that Neutral. specific question exactly. neutrally. Yeah. Yes, yes. That gets, you gets, it gets a little careful. tricky. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I guess the, uh, the next question, I'll just ask this. What, what, do, what do you expect the timeline to be at this point? When do you expect a, a recommendation or a private firm to support you in formation of a PAC? And, and the most important part, of course, is the school board's decision on uh, on the referendum, um, any idea about the timelines on that right now? Yeah, um, I know that we're going to discuss some more information in May um, to try to decide for sure if we want to choose an outside agency to help us. Um, I think with a district our size, we would be remiss to not take a great consideration about what it is we want to do. The times are not like they were in 2016. And so, you know, in an era of where we hear a lot about transparency and information and timeliness of information, um, we need to make a decision if we need someone else outside to help us with that. So sometime here in the next month, we're going to make the first decision as to whether or not we're going to take on additional supports. Has And, and the board also will need to decide... Uh which election cycle they're going to use. Uh, and that's that's a decision that's coming very soon. Will it be a, a primary or a fall a general election? Uh, so that that's still something to be decided. And I will tell you that that is something that typically 
the agency that supports us help us decide what's the best strategic time to put it on the ballot. So all of those types of things are questions that are answered once you or if we have an outside entity assist us. Let me move on. to. Uh, we've talked about the General Assembly a little bit uh, already, but they finished their short, short session this year. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, in your view, what actions did lawmakers take that I think would be of interest to the HSC families, staff, and the whole community? So one we c- talked about, which was um, HB 1093, House Bill 1093, um, which was basically the language that clarifies student instructional days and um, tells us that we can have three virtual days. And that impacted our calendars, actually, our current calendar coming up for next year, as well as the two that go beyond there. So that was an interesting one. Um, I will tell you that there are some others that um, I would want to share because I don't think they're ones that people necessarily know about. But one that deals with the community has to do with House Bill 1130. And if you think about that, it's what we call the public comments meeting bill. So what does this bill do? Well, it does something for us as HSE that we're already doing, but then it adds a component that we weren't doing. And let me explain what those are. So um, we do need to allow our public to have comments. Um, So here's what happens um, with this new bill. We continue what we're already doing, but then we have to add effective, I believe it's July 1, um, public comments have to happen at a work session. That's not something that we've already done. And public comments have to occur on consent agenda items. That's something that we haven't already done. And now while the rule do give us the opportunity to limit public comment, for example, you know, like we could say public comment is just going to be for a half hour. And let's just say we had, you know, um, 10 stakeholders who wanted to comment on, maybe three or four different topics, but overall it was 10. Maybe they all get three minutes. If you had 20, maybe they all get a minute and a half or whatever. They leave it up to us to, or I shouldn't say us. I really should say the board. They leave it up to the board to decide how we want to do that. But we do have to allow for public comment before we vote on an item. And let me explain that a little more because I don't want anyone to be confused. Typically, like, for example, with policy, typically with policy, we have an information session and then we have it come back again for a second read. If there's been public comment, for example, at the first reading, we don't necessarily have to have public comment at the second. That's not to say we wouldn't, but I just want to put that out there and make it clear. We just have to allow comments before a vote. And that's interesting because you had been doing a lot of that. Yes. Um, the consent agenda, that's something new. And that's just so people who don't really know what we mean by that, that is normally fairly routine, although there have been issues that have come up with some board members. It's mostly uh, f- financial details and uh, basically personnel actions. And it's mostly routine ones like a, uh, a coach being hired or somebody mm-hmm. to do extracurriculars being exactly. hired or, or deciding to back away or something, hirings and people resigning. That's mostly what it is. Day-to-day operations, I call it. And uh, yeah, I, I read them and it's like, you know, it's pretty pretty mundane for the yeah. most part. There are occasionally things that have an interest in there. So that's one change. A consent agenda can be commented upon because the rule the board has had 
uh, was you can speak before a board session if it deals with an agenda item. Mm -hmm. That's still the case, but you yeah. just had not done that with the uh, consent agenda. Right. And the other part is the work session. Uh, work sessions are, just for people who know, they're not uh, videos. They're not mm -hmm. uh, videotaped or video live streamed. But it, uh, there are generally no votes taken at work sessions. They're to discuss an issue exactly. to be uh, acted on later. Which that's why I found that interesting. We're usually not acting on anything, but, you know. Um, so we, there will be comments allowed at those uh, meetings as of July yes. 1st then. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and I do want to make a comment about consent agenda items. We still, as we do with any public comment, want to emphasize to our community the importance of not singling out people by their position or their name. Um, these are <laughs> our staff members who support our students. And at the end of the day, we don't want people to feel like they're being targeted. But we do want to hear from our community, you know, if they've got a comment or a concern. And there have been issues, I think most of them before you arrived here where people were almost ready to give a name and the superintendent or school board president normally said wait you know we don't want to be fine for you to make a comment do not mention anyone's name and that has been the policy here for the 11 years i've, I've covered the school board mm -hmm. and it's the policy of most school boards to yes. not name people mm -hmm. i want to move on to something else if i can because there's one issue that has been around for several years and that's the future of Fisher's Elementary School. I know you had to make a, a, an a physical improvement recently to the chiller mm -hmm. system, and someone came up and, and made a comment during the community com or not community the comment on the agenda item, asking why that was being done when the future of the school is in question. And basically, the answer was, you have, have to do this. There. This ha the kids are still there. You have exactly. to do it now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the 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 reason that this is such an important issue a couple of reasons one is fisher's elementary is smack dab in the middle of a of an area that's seeing a lot of, of intense development uh commercially mm -hmm. and uh, it is it has the smallest land footprint uh, most of our elementary schools have large land footprints this is a very small one and there's no place for you to to expand there because you're landlocked with, with the other development around it. So the question always has been, what's the future of Fisher's Elementary? Uh, I know that there's no answer to that question yet, but I would like you just to discuss what uh, the school board has been discussing, what the administration has been talking to the board about, about uh, what may be the future of Fisher's Elementary and the students who attend. So I will tell you that um, we do have a work session scheduled with the board on May 10th to receive Dr. McKibben's presentation on our updated demographic study. The board um, made it clear that they wanted that demographic study before they could truly make any recommendations to us and we make recommendations to them about the future use of Fisher's Elementary School. Um, and also this demographic study is an integral part of the data that we need to consider any evaluation about the use of the building in terms of capital use and programmatic uses. Um, you do know that we've got other programs that we could possibly 
utilize the building for if we were not using it for students, as well as the fact that, you know, I suppose if they were to try to do some building, and I'm not saying that they will, but, yeah, you know, you could build up. But I do understand, as you say, there's a lot of growth around the area. So what's going to happen to that building hasn't been determined, but I can tell you two things. Whatever we do decide to do, be it do something with the building or build a different building or, you know, move our students to other buildings. We're going to try to look at what's best for our students. And we're definitely going to get some input from the community when we do this. Well, and, and the demographic study would have a very big impact on that decision. And yes. that's come, and that report's coming very soon. Yes. And Dr. McKibben has been the demographer for the school corporation for years, as he does for a number of school corporations in this area. Um. Actually, a little over time, so I'm just going to ask a couple of uh, questions to, to wrap this up. This is your first school year as the uh, superintendent uh, here at uh, Hamilton Southeastern. As, as that first school year draws to a close, look back, if you will, for me. What, are, what do you consider your biggest successes and your biggest challenges that you have seen here in this first year? So, without a doubt, I would say that the biggest success for me, because I take everything back to students, is the fact that our students have been able to stay in school. You know, I know not each child was able to. Maybe they had to be out because of COVID or sickness or something of that nature. But the buildings, the schools have been open. And so I I, I think that that's kudos to my staff and our parents and community that we've been able to do that and to our board for allowing us to lead the charge. So that to me is a big success. Um, One of the other things I would say is that with that success is just how we handled COVID. I think we made all the right decisions and the timely decisions given the facts that we have. I would say that I know not everybody always agreed with all the decisions we made, but we could always message to you why we made those decisions and the information we had at hand and the laws and the facts that we had to live under. So to me, that was a success. Um, One of the biggest challenges, I think, and continues to be a challenge is staffing. And I don't mean just staffing for teachers or substitutes, staffing across the board, staffing for instructional assistance, staffing in food service, staffing for transportation. But you know what? I don't live in a vacuum. This is just not an issue for HSC. As you know, this is an issue that we've all noticed since covid so, but that is one of our biggest challenges is staffing. I don't think people understand just what a large employer HSE Schools is in yes. the Fishers community and even outside mm-hmm. the Fishers community going all the way up into Wayne Township and the unincorporated areas of, of, uh, of our other townships, Fall Creek and Delaware townships. Yep. It includes all of that, uh, that real estate. Dr. Stokes, um, I try to ask a number of questions here just based on what I see in my reporting uh, on the school corporation, uh, give you one last chance to add anything you might want to uh, discuss before we wrap this up. You know, I will say that we are nearing, if I'm correct, somewhere around just a month or so left of school. And I just want to say thank you to the board. Thank you to my staff and the community for allowing me to lead HSC schools. This was my first year, and I will tell you, it's been wonderful. So I appreciate this opportunity. 
And that's Yvonne Stokes. Dr. Yvonne Stokes is the superintendent of schools for Hamilton Southeastern School. So, Dr. Stokes, thank you so much you. for carving out some time for me today. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Mm-hmm.